play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. This is your last meal. I'm your host, Rachel Bell. Every episode, I interview a celebrity about what they would want to eat for their last meal. And then we explore the history of that food, the culture, and whatever else we can cram into 30 minutes. Today on the program, Christopher Kimball. Is this Mr. Kimball? Yes. This is Rachel Bell from Cairo Radio in Seattle. Hi, how are you? He was so suspicious at first. Christopher Kimball is the tall, detail-oriented, meticulously dressed man in the bow tie who founded America's Test Kitchen and Cook's Illustrated magazine. He's written a bunch of cookbooks, and this year he launched Milk Street Kitchen with a magazine, television and radio shows, books, and a cooking school. And I didn't really know what to call him in this episode because every episode I call my guests by their first name, but I felt so strange calling him Christopher because of the bow tie that I am going to refer to him as the New York Times would as Mr. Kimball. Later in the show, we'll have some female guests and I'm just going to call them by their first names, but this doesn't mean that I'm not a feminist and that I don't respect them. Well, if they were wearing bow ties. That's right. If they were wearing bow ties, they would get to be Ms. Lebo, but uh, we digress. Christopher Kimball is famous for testing and testing and testing recipes until they are, in his opinion, absolutely perfect. Well, you're talking about America's Test Kitchen now. Yeah, we figured out we tested recipes 30 to 50 times, the ones that ended up in the magazine, something like that. Quite a lot. Now, you could argue that maybe all those tests weren't necessary, but sometimes on the 30th test, you find something really interesting. At 65 years old, Kimball, ooh, Mr. Kimball, rather. <laughs> At 65 years old, Mr. Kimball takes food very seriously. So I wondered where his fascination with food all started. Do you remember the first thing that you ever cooked? Yes, I do. I, um, I made a chocolate cake when I was eight or nine out of Fanny Farmer, and I made a seven-minute frosting with it, which is a boiled icing, and it looked like snot. It, it was gross. I mean, the cake came out fine. I do remember frosting it, and it was pretty hideous. And my family, my parents, you know, extolled the virtues of my baking skills lying through their teeth, and um, that's how I got started. So how did you become somebody who was the type of cook who wanted to test and retest and retest and make sure things are perfect? Is that just something that's a part of your personality? I cooked a lot and had a lot of failures, and I started taking cooking classes and you know, I could never get an answer because I, I realized that people didn't actually know the answer because they were just repeating what they'd been told. So it was just really annoying that you, you, no one really knew what was going on. So the obvious thing was, you know, to go and test. But I have to say, Julia Child, long before me, uh, Julia was, you know, making t 20 different, you know, souffles to figure out what the best method was. So Julia really, I mean, no one really knows this, but Julia's was was a real tester. I mean, she, she'd go back in the kitchen and make it over and over and over again. So she was doing this long before I got there. But testing a single recipe 30 to 50 times is not chopped liver. What happens to all the failed recipes? Do you guys eat those? Do you give the food to a food bank? Do you just throw it away? Uh, yeah, it was the joke in the office was uh, the really good stuff the cooks took home. If it was either expensive like lobster or tenderloin or the food was really good, the cook working on the recipe would take it home. If it was okay, 
then we called the marketing department down and they would get it. And if it was really lousy, like it was the early stages of testing, then we'd call accounting. The accounting would come down and get it. So that was, <laughs> that was the priority. Editorial, marketing, accounting. There were plenty of people there. So we didn't really throw yeah. Every time Mr. Kimball is interviewed, all people want to talk to him about is food. And of course, I want to talk about food, too. But I really wanted to get to the bottom of his signature bow tie. When you're teaching, you're always wearing your bow tie. When you're learning, are you still wearing the bow tie? If there's a camera there, yeah. Um, no, no. no I'm, I'm going to Thailand in December for a few days. I don't think I'll be wearing my bow tie. In, a bow tie uh, land? Well, I, you know, maybe <laughs> I should. Because I'd be the first person to wear a bow tie in Thailand. Maybe in Bangkok it's popular. I don't know. <clears throat> but um, probably not. I don't think Christopher Kimball heard my pun. Do you think he? I don't think he heard it. Bow Thailand. Bow Thailand, Mr. Kimball. Where did that come from, your signature style? Um, well, it came from the fact that when I started Cooks, you can't walk around a kitchen with a, with a tie, obviously. And I like the idea of, of dressing up for work so I can dress down later. Um, so, you know, the choice was really I had no choice. <laughs> the bow tie forced you to wear it. Yeah. I mean, it appealed to my sense of sort of being retro, I guess. I mean, I've always liked, I'm a big fan of the past. I mean, and also in Boston, you know, people, there are still people here who always wore bow ties. You know, it's, it's not that unusual in Boston. So when you say so, it's you can dress down later. Is it kind of like it makes being casual extra comfortable once you take off the fancy clothes? Well, I, 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 I grew up. <laughs> sounds weird. I grew up in a family where we had dinner at seven o'clock, and I had to wear a tie and jacket for dinner. At your own house. Uh, yes, in my own house, and that came from my mother's side of the family because her family was very formal and lived in Washington, and so we, you know. They would have dinner at seven o'clock, and you'd have to be dressed up. Um, I like that. I like I like formality. I like getting dressed up. Um, I'm shocked when I go to airports and see how people show up at airports. I wouldn't walk around my own house the way some people show up in airports. <laughs> um, I mean, really. I mean, grown men wearing shorts and t-shirts and flip-flops. You know, I'm sorry. I I, I like dressing up. I think it's nice. And, you know, I, I think it shows respect for other people and. Yeah, and, and then, then at the end of the day, you know, you put your jeans on. And, yeah. I bet you okay. iron your jeans, though. I do, no, I do not okay, iron Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Please. I'm not, I don't like iron jeans. <laughs> well, now you know. If you want to upset Mr. Kimball, just tell him that he irons his jeans. That seems to be something that really sets him off. He yelled at me. Do you guys hear? He yelled at me because I told him that he ironed his jeans. So are there any other bits of nostalgia nostalgia or formality that you hold to, like things you have pet peeves about maybe when you go out to dinner or something that you wish people would be a little bit more old-fashioned about? Uh, I was in Cincinnati a few years ago, and I went to a haberdasher. I know I just have this fascination with haberdashers because there's very few of them left. And this guy was really cool guy, older guy. This teenager walked by the window eating, and his comment was, even dogs sit down when they eat. You know, even dogs don't walk when they eat. And, and I think this, this culture of walking around eating, I, I don't understand that. I just think that's really weird. I, I think if you're going to eat, you should sit down and eat. But the idea of eating between meals and, you know, in public, walking down the street eating is, is a very strange concept. It's, I mean, you don't see people in France do this. 
I hope you got something good to eat tonight. Hi, Mom. The coach really gave us a workout. Oh, boy, ham. I'm so hungry I could eat a, a neutral and see what he gave us to do. Sure. Huh? Could you serve yourself in a, in a less athletic manner? Oh. I remember when my kids were young, they had people over for kids over for sleepover. I can't tell you the lack of table manners. I mean, these are well-educated kids. Yeah, they chew with their mouth open, elbows on the table. They'd start eating before everybody was served. So <laughs> I think all of my, my my children's friends hated me. They, they were scared. So I always say, okay, you hear the rules. You know, we have some rules here. And I just think that's, you know, that's important. That's part of being civilized, which maybe is an old-fashioned term. Jack, at least you could manage to be on time. After your mother goes to all the trouble to prepare a fine meal, it's... It's only common courtesy, Chuck. Okay, so getting to the question at hand, what would your last meal be? Well, um, I would do exactly what Jacques Pepin said, which he was asked this question, and his answer was uh, it would be the meal that takes the longest to prepare, which I thought was pretty smart. So I would probably do something really annoying like a three-day mole sauce, which I would never make otherwise, just so I could have the longest possible last meal. Um, in terms of the food I would really like, I still am obsessed with apple pie because I think it's the hardest thing to make well. And I think it's the ultimate test of your cooking skills. How many apple pies do you think you've made in your lifetime? Oh, hundreds and hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pies. I mean, we finally, for our charter issue, we actually did finally figure out, you know, I've been searching for the perfect pie dough for my entire career. We finally figured it out. But the problem is, as you probably know, if, if you don't use enough water, the dough is hard to roll out because it's too dry. But if you do use enough water, then the water works with the, the flour and you develop gluten and it's not as tender. So we mixed water and cornstarch and microwaved it briefly and then put it in the freezer for 10 minutes and it turns into a gel. And so the water is suspended in the gel and doesn't react with the flour as much. And so you get this incredible, smooth, uh, uh, I don't even know how to put it. It almost feels almost like plasticine. It's this wonderful texture. And it's easy to roll out, and anybody can work with it. And then um, it doesn't shrink when you pre-bake it. It's pretty solid. So that makes pie making a lot easier because the, the hardest thing about the pie, of course, is the crust. I was sure you were going to say a vodka crust. I thought that's what you were famous no, for. That was a, no, that was a good, that was an excellent recipe, and that was the best one until now. That was Kenji uh, Lopez Alt did that when he worked at ATK years ago. Uh, and that was a great recipe. But his, his theory was similar, was half of vodka's uh, alcohol, and the alcohol doesn't react with gluten, uh, with the gluten proteins to form gluten. And uh, this is similar, except we've taken almost all the water out in terms of working with the uh, flour. So it, it's a similar science, but a very different solution. And um, I actually like this one better because it's really easy to work with. So you say you found the perfect pie. This is such a hard thing to say because, of course, everybody has a different definition of what is ideal for a certain kind of food. So for you, what makes this pie perfect? You know, when it's all baked, what are the elements that are perfect for you? For an apple pie? Yeah. If you go back to, you know, an earlier time, people obviously used whatever apples they had. 
and they might use some wild apples and they might use three or four varieties. You might use an apple like a Mac that breaks down or something like a Northern Spy, which was originally called Northern Pie Apple for a reason. Um, that stands up to baking better. You might have a really tart apple, a really sweet apple. So you have a lot of different flavors in the pie, and that's what I try to do is to use more than one variety. And then secondly, no spices. I think cinnamon destroys apple pie. Cinnamon is very powerful, and you don't get to taste the apples. So I don't use any spices. I use uh, eight cups of apples to half a cup of sugar, depending on the sweetness of the apples a little salt, um, and lemon juice and lemon zest. And I might put a tablespoon or two of butter on top before I put the top crust on. And then uh, then, then you, this was a technique that America's Test Kitchen figured out. Brush the top with water, not egg whites or egg yolks or cream, and then sprinkle it with a big tablespoon of sugar, and you get this beautiful glaze on top just with water and the sugar. And... Uh, bake it so the crust gets pretty dark. You know, in Europe, they tend to bake their pastries longer because you get more flavor. And uh, you also make sure the edge really cooks through. So I, I get a pretty dark color on the crust to make sure it's really well cooked and make sure it's fully cooled because a warm apple pie, I don't think, has much flavor. I think it's much better cold. In fact, for breakfast in the morning, it's probably the best point. Well, it is interesting that Mr. Kimball prefers to eat apple pie for breakfast because that's actually a very old-fashioned and historical way to eat it. So I think everybody knows that expression, as American as apple pie. That's kind of a load of crap. Apple pie is not American. It's it's European. And when it first came over to the United States with the settlers from England, it was not a dessert at all. We will explore this and more when we come back. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. All right, it's time to crack into the history of apple pie. I'm going to welcome expert dessertress and pie spy Jessie Olsenmore. She's an author and an illustrator who runs the adorable dessert blog Cake Spy. Uh, she also authored a fascinating book about dessert history called The Secret Lives of Baked Goods. It was more like kind of a breakfast item. It was a farmer breakfast and something that would be given to children. But I think that that's more a Northeastern tradition. This is all making sense because Mr. Kimball was raised and still lives in the Northeast. Apple 
Apple pie is actually America's favorite pie. The American Pie Council says one in five Americans claim it as their favorite pie. But humans have been feasting on some version of apple pie long before little baby America was even a glimmer in its mother's eye. The exciting thing about apple pie is that it's really one of the oldest ones. It dates back to even medieval times. One of the earliest recipes is from like the 1300s or something. And the way that they would bake pies at that time was the pastry was actually more just a vessel for the fillings. So they would bake a pastry on top of the embers of a fire but they would discard it and they would just eat the tasty insides. It makes more sense to learn that these pies were eaten for breakfast or even for dinner when you learn that they weren't the sweet confections that we know today. They would make kind of unsweetened apple pies, which, you know, owing to the nature of apples would be slightly sweet, but they would more spice them rather than adding sugar. Adding sugar to recipes just in general is a fairly new phenomenon because it was traditionally a very rare and kind of prized ingredient. So these early apple pies were probably just apples and spices. And it's here in America, though, that it really evolved into a dessert where it would be sweetened and the apples would kind of be stewed. And so I think that it's just something that kind of took on as a tradition. What can I get you? I'll have a number three. I'd like the chef salad, please, with the oil and vinegar on the side and the apple pie a la mode. Chef and apple a la mode. But I'd like the pie heated, and I don't want the ice cream on top. I want it on the side, and I'd like strawberry instead of vanilla if you have it. If not, then no ice cream, just whipped cream, but only if it's real. If it's out of a can, then nothing. Not even the pie? No, just the pie, but then not heated. Uh Uh-huh. What is your opinion on a la mode? Um, I hate it. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm being honest. Um, I, I don't get it. Um, and matter of fact, I just had a big fight with Dan Pashman of the, the Sporkful podcast about he likes to, to mash up his, his pie with semi-melted ice cream, which also sounds horrible. I like the pie. And a little cheddar, sharp cheddar with apple pie actually is good. But I don't, I don't want drippy ice cream on it because it's going to sog out the crust. and It's too sweet also. I think a great apple pie has to be tart and sweet, you know. And ice cream's got so much sugar in it, it sort of drowns out the, the apple flavor. So I'm, I'm not a big fan. Oh, boy. There are so many things here for us to unpack. First of all, I love how opinionated this man is. Who hates a la mode that much? He just, he hates it. When do you hear people just say they hate ice cream that bad? I mean, I just, I want to marry Mr. Kimball, but not really because I like ice cream and we'd probably get a divorce. And second of all, we really need to talk about eating a little bit of sharp cheddar with apple pie. This is something that I've had only once. I will say it was surprisingly delicious. And it's not that strange because if you think about it on a fruit plate, there will often be cheese and apples mixed together. And then crust is kind of like a bread and cheese. I don't know. I think it kind of makes sense. Where did this come from? Because I think to a lot of people, it sounds really strange. It does sound strange, but if you've never tried it, it does something very good. I think that the way that I could explain it is to say that, you know how salt can add just a new dimension to dessert? It's almost like adding the cheese will add a saltiness and a richness and a contrast to the apple. So to the best of my knowledge, this is a tradition that 
began and to this day, I think, is perpetuated mainly in the northeastern United States. I know that the only people I've ever talked to who do this or even know of it are from Vermont or Massachusetts. Aha! Mr. Kimball currently lives in Cambridge, Vermont, and he works in Boston, Massachusetts. So it sounds like Jesse's theory of northeastern people and apple pie and cheddar cheese is completely correct. But there's even a cute little rhyme that I love that is apple pie without the cheese is like a kiss without the squeeze. Oh, God. She's the cutest person who's ever lived. Seriously, go to her blog. Go to Cake Spy so you can see the cuteness of the drawings that Jesse Olson Moore does. She, ugh. They're adorable. They're adorable. Little little cupcakes. Her little palms. So Mr. Kimball says he likes cheese on his pie, but he does not like it a la mode. But Mr. Kimball is a man who loves to learn, so I'm pretty sure he would love to know the story of how the phrase a la mode came to be. And if you don't know what a la mode is, it is just a scoop of ice cream over pie. You never really know if this is fully truth or if there's an element of urban legend about it. According to the tale, what happened was that a gentleman from, I believe, upstate New York, he took to ordering apple pie a la mode, which was the nickname that the restaurant he frequented gave to this serving suggestion for apple pie. So this man goes to New York City and goes to the famous Delmonico restaurant which, among other things, is credited with developing baked Alaska and all sorts of things. So he goes to this famed restaurant and tries to order apple pie a la mode, and they have no idea what he's talking about. So he is outraged and says, I can't believe that an establishment of this caliber would not know of this dessert. And in short order, they added it to their menu. And because of their fame, the name kind of caught on. So it is apple pie to which we owe a la mode. So the original place, they just kind of made it up. It was their shtick. Yeah, I believe so. That's kind of how the story goes. I guess he would always order apple pie with ice cream and was like, hey, what do you what do you call this? And I like to imagine some, you know, world weary diner cook with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth being like a la mode. It doesn't actually directly translate from French to with ice cream no, on top. I believe the translation would just be of a fashion. Oh, so that doesn't make any sense. That's so interesting. Yeah, you're right. I just looked it up because, yeah, fashion is mode. Huh? Yeah, that is so funny. Now, as far as Mr. Kimball's aversion to spices in a pie and having pie a la mode with ice cream on top, Jesse just doesn't get it. But Kate Lebo does. Kate has built an entire career on pie and poetry. She bakes pies. She teaches pie school. She judged pie at the Iowa State Fair. And she published a book of pie poetry and a very beautiful pie cookbook called Pie School, Lessons in Fruit, Flour, and Butter, which, by the way, I used to make my very first pie. Actually, I agree with him completely. When I teach pie school, I have everybody raise their right hand and solemnly swear to put their ice cream on the side. Why? If they're going to have ice cream. Because you just made this beautiful crust. You glop ice cream on top and it ruins that crust. But also ice cream is like what you do to subpar pie to kind of bring it up to a decent level. It covers up and mutes all of the interesting flavors of the fruit, which I think I'm guessing that that's why Christopher Kimball isn't interested in spices. I'm guessing it's because he wants to taste that fruit, which I, I agree with. I think you get the best fruit. You don't mess with it too much. 
and that makes a great apple pie. Kate also has strong opinions on the construction of the perfect apple pie, which, by the way, is also her very favorite pie. I think that uh, the lattice top on an apple pie is a mistake. Lattices are made for incredibly juicy pies that need a lot of venting room. So like a blueberry pie or a cherry pie, that's perfect for a lattice. Whenever I see a lattice on an apple pie, I'm just like, oh, you don't understand what that lattice is for. Apples, while juicy, contain their juices very well and tend to dry out when they're not covered by crust. So lattice isn't the best choice for an apple pie. So Mr. Kimball, as well as Jesse and Kate, all agree that the best apple pie is made with a variety of apples. But nobody wants to throw a Red Delicious into the mix. You guys know Red Delicious. It's beautiful. It's that classic red apple that, you know, maybe a brown noser would put on their teacher's desk. Or it's the apple that's Snow White and the... Did Snow White give it to the witch? Is that what it was? No, the witch gave it to Snow White. The apple that... the the witch gave to Snow White. It is a beautiful apple that I had in my lunchbox growing up that I always tried to trade to other kids because it's an awful, terrible apple. They are mealy and mushy and nobody I know buys them anymore. They look pretty, but they taste awful. And this is becoming an issue for apple growers. So in Washington state, the majority of apples grown here are red delicious, but about two thirds of those apples that are grown are exported to countries like China, where red is an auspicious color. The Washington Apple Commission's Rebecca Lyons says the gala apple is quickly gaining popularity amongst consumers, but she says it's not so easy for the farmers to make the switch. You know, the industry is changing, but you have to remember Apples grow on trees, right? Not like with potatoes or carrots or what's these row crops, you know, something doesn't grow well or, or loses favor with consumers. You just plant something new next season, right? There is a lag time. It takes three to five years for an apple tree to become productive. And now with the intensive planting that's going on in orchards, it costs about forty to $50,000 an acre to change over. So, you know, it's kind of like a big, one of those big ships that you, you can direct it, but it just, it won't turn around immediately. And our, our industry is certainly um, changing the variety profile that we're growing. It, it takes a while to adjust. These are her apple tips. Never bake with Red Delicious. She said they will just turn into mush and keep all of your apples in the refrigerator if you want the ultimate crunch. Do you do that? No. I don't either. No. I didn't even know that was a thing. I thought that it would take away the flavor because if you buy a nice cheese, you're supposed to leave it on the counter to come to room temperature so that it has the most flavor. So I thought that putting fruit in the fridge would would do the same. Well, who would notice with a Red Delicious anyway? Am I I right, guys? Poor Red Delicious. Okay, we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, Christopher, I don't iron my jeans, Kimball, talks about the trashy food that he likes to eat while watching cartoons. listening to your last meal you might like watching my new tv show the nosh with rachel bell we just wrapped up season one so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org in episode one i convince an east coast skeptic that seattle now has fantastic bagels and in the season finale we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of seattle episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. Christopher Kimball is classy. 
He's a perfectionist. He likes excellent quality food. But everybody, everybody has a crack in their armor, even Mr. Kimball. Do you have something that kind of is the antithesis of all this, like your secret weird thing that you like to eat that goes against everything you stand for and would probably embarrass you if people knew that you like to eat it? Marshmallows. Just plain, or do you have to put them over the fire? No, no, just plain. I know I, I have this, the texture of marshmallows has always been. I used to like Hostess Snowballs for that reason, because I like that the marshmallow outside. Are those the big um, pink ones? I, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. The pink pink ones, oh, yeah. Well, I grew up, I had the best of both. I had very simple farm cooking in Vermont, and then I'd also sometimes go to the corner store and get the, the double dogs and the tabletop pies and the... I had quite a lot of that stuff growing up, so I do have a taste for snowballs. I did have a, um, I had the uh, the chocolate cupcakes, you know, the the uh, hostess. Yeah, the hostess cupcakes. I did actually try one a few years ago. We were working on a recipe for a homemade one, which is kind of silly because I wouldn't go to that much trouble. And I have to say, it was not. I was disappointed. It didn't have a lot of chocolate flavor, and that filling, which I thought was so great was not really quite so great. Anything that I loved when I was a kid, I stopped going back to because it's just disappointing. Like your palate has developed so much that you just can't possibly find it to be as good as you did. And I hate that sadness that comes with, you know, this thing that you love just not uh, being yeah, good but anymore. Yeah, you know what? Daffy Duck just gets better with age. Does he? Okay, that's the one then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's true, Doc. I'm a rabbit, all right. Would you like to shoot me now or wait till you get home? Shoot him now! Shoot him now! You keep out of this. He doesn't have to shoot you now. He does so have to shoot me now. I command that you shoot me now. The the best cartoon ever done. It's called Rabbit Seasonings. Is that what it's called? I think that's it. It was was Bugs and Daffy, and it was just a... I mean, they, they, those guys were high all the time, right? Didn't They, totally. they worked in some trailer off one of the lots, and I think they were just constantly, you know, whatever. Those cartoons were brilliant. So, Do you still watch yeah. cartoons? Oh, yeah. I mean, they, those old cartoons were very adult. I mean, the, the ones that were most adult, remember Betty Boop? Yes. If you go back and watch Betty Boop cartoons, they were done for adults. What food goes best with Daffy Duck? That's a good question. Well, it would have to be something absurd, right? You would have to be nihilistic or something because <laughs> that was Daffy Duck. I mean, I, I, you probably host the snowballs, right? I mean, it would have to be something like that. Totally. In your underwear. Yeah, maybe. Um, underwear and a bow tie. I think, I think that was your suggestion, not mine. Don't quote me on that one. I didn't say that. I'm going to watch it in my underwear. You can wear whatever you want. We don't okay. have to watch it together, though. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll just have, I'll, I'll wear my suit and bow tie. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Now, as we approach the very last piece of this episode, it seems appropriate to talk about what to do with the very last slice of an apple pie. One of my favorite ways to enjoy apple pie, and this is like a little bit naughty. You know how like the last slice of pie is always a little bit weird. There's that weird little sliver that's kind of awkwardly cut and kind of like gummy on the side because it's been a few days. That's the one that I like to put in a blender with some ice cream and a little bit of milk and make myself an apple pie shake. Yum. And it is delicious. And because it has fruit in it, it's totally fine to call it a smoothie. This was Christopher Kimball's last meal. Well, anything else you want to add before I let you go? 
I think uh, that was it. Just don't quote me about watching the cartoon, that's all. <laughs> Just the part about in your underwear, right? You'll watch the cartoon, but clothed. That's, you know, that, yeah. that, that was your quote, not mine. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. It all was right. really great chatting with you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Spoken from a man who clearly has lawyers. Thank you to Cakes by Jesse Olson Moore, Pie School's Kate Lebo, the Washington Apple Commission's Rebecca Lyons, and my lovely producer, Aaron Mason. Original music, as always, by Prom Queen. And if you like what you hear, why don't you go ahead and subscribe on iTunes. You're sure to catch each episode fresh when it comes out of the oven. And please leave a review so more people can find the podcast. I'm Rachel Bell, and until next time, this is your last meal. Chuck, don't talk with your mouth full. Pie, 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 pie. Is it? Is a lot of pie? Pie, 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 pie